in uh, calculus class in 12th grade, which I didn't do well in, but we had a, the last portion of calculus class was statistics. And, um, and I did do good in that. I like numbers and information and things like that. Uh, and uh, we, we came across, uh, we had to calculate, one of the, the problems we had to calculate was the likelihood of two people having the same birthday. Uh, and of course we all said one in 365 or whatever, and we were all wrong. And, um, and it, was, it, it turns out it's like one in 20-ish or something like that. And, and uh, so, so we, all, we all did our calculations. And then uh, my teacher, we called him the Cross. Uh, he, because uh, uh, his, his name was Bill Crosby, uh, he, he started writing all our dates down, and then he opened up the door to the next classroom, and we got about halfway through, and, uh, and we found a match. Uh, so if you look in your bulletin, uh, you'll find that there are three people uh, on the 15th uh, in our bulletin. That, that, that's incredibly unlikely. That is not 1 in 25. That is astronomically higher uh, than, than that. So just kind of pointing that out. But it kind of ties into what we're talking about. It wasn't in my notes. My wife pointed that out to me during, during a church uh, service this morning. And, uh, but information is important. Having the right information, having all the information. Now, of course, uh, in statistics class, we, were, we, we didn't all have the, or have the, we had the information. We didn't have the ability to put it together correctly, I guess. And, uh, however, if I leave out information, that does affect the final thing, right? That, that, that affects the final result. Give you a couple of illustrations of this. Uh, it, it, while I'm telling the story, you can, you can figure out what the, the directions mean here on, on, the, on the medicine bottle. But uh, when we, we moved over to Ukraine, uh, there were a lot of things that we discovered that we didn't have, that we liked. One of them was peanut butter. Uh, so, so imagine trying to make peanut butter. We found a recipe online, and, and we tried to make peanut butter. Okay, that didn't turn out great, but it, you could, uh, if you used your imagination, it was basically crushed peanuts, uh, and, and you spread that with some sugar on, on some bread, and that was that was about as close because we didn't really have a good food processor. Uh, like all the all the directions said, you know, use this like four hundred dollar food processor. Okay, well, I have peanut butter, I have bread, I need grape jelly. Uh, they're just that's, guess what? That's another thing that they don't have over there. They have lots of jam. Uh, they all love the ladies over there. Can, 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 can. Everything they have is can. Uh, can tomato, can pickles. You can everything. Uh, jams, every kind of jam you want. Apricot jam, strawberry jam, raspberry jam, uh, currant jam. Everything. No grape jelly. They do not make grape jelly. So we decided we're going to make grape jelly. Well, if you've ever tried to make grape jelly, let me tell you. You can make grape syrup. You cannot make grape jelly. Uh, it does not gel. And so, so we came up, and, and, and it looked just like this. This is actually a picture. This is not ours. This is a picture off of a blog who, of a lady who tried to make her own grape jelly. doesn't work. Uh, you actually have to put jello uh, in it, gelatin in it. And you have to get it just right so that it's not grape jello. Uh, Missing some important information now, wasn't I? Now, now it, it can it can be as as uh, not severe as the, the results can be as not catastrophic as having a use your imagination on a peanut and jelly syrup sandwich. Okay, and and that's going to have to get you for the next year or two before you get back to America where you can get a, a real proper peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Or it could lead to an overdose. I don't know. 
Not having the right information or not having all of the information is it, it has a, a range of, of the things that it can produce. So we're going to explore another element of spirituality today in which Jesus gives an important piece of information. He adds some information to this. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what piece of information are we talking about? Well, we know he's talking about purity. But I want to talk about vague concepts. Because one of the things that's important is simplification can be misleading. Um, Why doesn't Jesus say, blessed are the pure? But he adds a detail. Blessed are the pure in heart. And that's going to be an important information. We simplify. A lot of times we simplify. Now, the high school I talked about was a small one. So my calculus teacher was also my physics teacher. So I had to cross right across the hall for physics. And whenever he did, I I like like, uh, Mr. Cross. uh, He was was a great teacher. I wasn't a good enough student for him, but, but he was a great teacher and entertaining. And he always did his... But whenever we had an experiment in physics that we had to do, uh, you know, some math formula we had to figure out, he would always say, we're going to do this one in a vacuum. Right? So, so this thing is falling, or this thing is happening, and this thing is pulling in a vacuum. And what he meant by that was, I'm simplifying this because there's actually a lot of variables that, that, that go into this equation, which it, if we took this into account, you wouldn't be able to handle it. So we're going to simplify and I just want you to figure out this force and this thing. Right? That, that, that's all. Just, just to teach you an elementary principle. And, and so we simplify. Sometimes we simplify to try to make it easier to grasp for an easy con, a, a hard concept. Uh, try to get it so it's easier before we move on. And that's good. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But sometimes when we do that, we will get an inaccurate picture. If I would have taken, though, if I would have ended up working in some field with physics, uh, where that's necessary, and I would have tried to do, you know, actual real-world problems in a vacuum, guess what? Nothing would work that I ever work on. Because there are those variables. You do have to factor in those things. Oversimplification will lead to an incorrect result. We need those little details, and this little detail is important. It can be misleading. Let me give you an illustration of... <clears throat> of uh, how uh, simplification is misleading spiritually. You've ever seen this? Thou shalt not kill. We say that. Right? We, we teach our kids the... And, and this is fine for downstairs, but they are inaccurate. Oversimplifications, in this case, are both inaccurate in, in two different ways. Uh, let's handle the first one. God does not say, Thou shalt not kill. Now, how do I know that? Because elsewhere, in Ecclesiastes 3.3, 3, says there is a time to kill. Well, so, he obviously, the, the, the Ten Commandments is not accurate. Well, the Ten Commandments are accurate. Well, because they don't say thou shalt not kill. They say thou shalt not murder. That's a little bit different. There is a time to kill, but not all killing is murder. We could go down that path. We could talk about capital punishment. We could talk about lots of things, right? But an oversimplification, while generally true, produces just a slight inaccuracy. 
What about the next one? Andrew, are you going to tell me there's a time to lie? No, Solomon never said there's a time to lie. Didn't say that. But I do want to illustrate that there's an inaccuracy in this one as well. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 18 19 says, The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst. This does not say... And we often simplify this to thou shalt not lie. That's not what it... All lying is wrong, yes. But the Ten Commandments was focusing on a specific area of that, and it was focusing on bearing false witness in court. That's why it was actually capital punishment to do this. And God says, you're you're lying about someone, and that could impact... You're doing that to impact their life. Maybe that's why you do that. You're going to lie under oath to, to try to get somebody in trouble. <clears throat> That's what happened to Jesus in his trials. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so actually the Pharisees committed a capital crime. And they should have actually been put to death for what they did. That specifically, it was like a, a you know, every time someone lied, they didn't get stoned. Not that that was okay to lie, but that this was a special commandment. When we oversimplify, we, we change things a little bit, and, and, and we get a slightly inaccurate picture. And that, that's what I want to point out before we move on to, to why this detail is in here, that Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So my natural view of purity is what? Uh, it's not wrong my natural view of purity. It's just incomplete. If I asked everybody here to describe it, describe, write down on a piece of paper, purity as you understand purity, we would probably about do a similar thing. We would probably all write down a list of behaviors that we think a person should do to be pure, right? I said, this is purity. And we could get, I mean, those who just have a mastery of the scriptures, they would, they would remember all of the lists of sins. And we would come up with a great list of things that people don't do, and we'd come up with a great list of things that pure people do. And, and we would have a, a, we would, then if we said, oh, you know what, we want to just have a complete picture, so we'll compile everybody's together. And we'll say, this is a pure person. I, I mean, we would get a. I, I imagine out of this this room, we, we would get a list of just about a person that is as impeccable as as you could possibly be. Such a person may have not existed other than Christ, right? I mean, that that's we go, wow, what an amazing person, and it would be inaccurate. That picture would be inaccurate because. My natural view of purity is a list of behaviors. That's just the way I think. That person's pure. You can tell because of the things he says and does. Because that's... How else am I going to engage or gauge this? How else am I going to figure out if you're pure or not pure other than the things that I can see and experience? That is my expectation of purity. As I say, it's not wrong. It's just incomplete. 
A pure person should do those things. That's why those lists are in the Bible. Or should avoid those things. That's why those lists are in the Bible. But those do not define purity as God wants it. So let's talk about genuine purity. This, this statement of Jesus tells us what he wants from purity. He says, uh, okay, let's, uh, what about this, my verse? It says, for the, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we're going to look at this, uh, break this down just a little bit. Um, he says, the thoughts. And I want to d- discuss thoughts, two elements of thoughts. If we say, uh, we want good thoughts, right? Because he talks about purity of heart. Genuine purity is purity from the heart. And, and this is where, where, where Paul is addressing here in Hebrews. He says, listen, uh, the scriptures judge two elements. And don't get hung up on the word judge. We're talking about discerning uh, and looking at different elements of the inside of us. This is where purity is to be found. It's not to be found exclusively in a list, but it will derive from what's inside. And so, it's in the thoughts. Or I should say, it's in the information. When we look at thoughts, we tend to think about bad thoughts, right? This person has bad thoughts. What am I thinking about? Well, it could be anything. <laughs> but, but typically, it might be malicious thoughts about somebody else. It could be bad thoughts that I'm not supposed to be thinking. Right? When I say judging the thoughts, that's, that's typically where I go. And those are accurate, again, but not complete. It's not just hate or jealousy or all these different types of things that we think are bad. But it is the information that we absorb and accept and and, and peruse that becomes the basis for our life. The concept of purity. Let's back up just a second. Purity or impurity is... The word mixture. That's really what it is. Impurity is mixture. So it just means to be mixed with things. It doesn't have necessarily the idea of being bad. You can have an impure thought without it being actually a bad thought in, in terms of its morality. It's just mixed. We're actually talking about this in class today, talking about methods to, to accomplish things that, that might not be immoral, but they might be just things that God's not interested in. Right? It, it, I, I could use a natural means to accomplish something that God wants to accomplish spiritually. It's not immoral. It's just not the way that God likes to do things. And we, we kind of always break things down into moral or immoral when there's not necessarily those things. You know, uh, none of us would, would, would you know, we probably, I think, all would have a, a tendency to, to look at some of the ways that people grow church, for example. Those are, those are not necessarily wrong, but they're just not the way God wants to do them. Well, the same exists true with, with the information we take in. Sometimes the thing is not necessarily evil in and of itself. It's just not the information 
They might be wrong, but not necessarily wrong in the same sense. I'll give you some examples of this um, in, in just a second here. So, so, but we sometimes mix an idea from the world and in mixing that idea of the world into the general information that we have as Christians, we will affect things spiritually. Here's an example. Right? So we, we take a wrong premise, and this wrong doctrine will impact my life. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 through 22. I want you to think about some things that are popular to hear today. In light of what, what he wrote, Almost 2,000 years ago. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike again, strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now what did he just say there? We have people that live today in a pandemonium and in a panic, scared of something that God said is never going to happen. Never going to happen. Uh, two years ago, I think, at, at the... Uh, just, and I want to illustrate that, that this gets into churches. Eventually, this is accepted by churches. Two years ago, I think, at the... Uh, at a, a green Earth Day, whatever, uh, festival or something, the Pope said that the climate is on the verge. He used that word, or on the edge. We're on the edge. No, we're not, buddy. As long as the... I'm not saying go... Look, when we leave today, we can throw our trash out the window. That's, a, that's not what I'm saying. If you, if you heard me say that, that's not what I said. <laughs> As long as the earth continues, if you live in those climates, such as we live, you're going to have a snowblower. That's what I'm telling you. <coughs> and if you don't, you're going to work hard like me because my snowblower is sitting in my garage for two years needing to be fixed. We're going to shovel. And within a couple of weeks, all of you are going to get a suitcase or something or box with your winter clothes and you're going to put those up. But people have accepted, and this is not what my sermon is about. I want to illustrate using a common thing that we recognize today is, is constantly on the minds of people. And you hear it every time you engage the world around you. You hear the panic. And Christians are starting to panic about this and other things. Because why? Because we let a premise of the world get into our theology and it will affect our life. And so people live in fear. Christians live in fear who should not be living in fear unless, of course, they have rejected a statement that God made 3,000 and a half years ago. And, by the way, has been true for three and a half thousand years. Is not going to change. We are no more on the verge of anything 
than we were when Noah stepped out of the ark. It's a fact. And I could take this, and I could, we could do this again and again and again with every topic that a godless world is panicked about. What is the information we're taking in? And so what does this have to be, do with purity? We're going to get there. One is the information, right? But there's also logic. I want to actually read the larger section here before we just look at one verse. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we'll get a context. Verse 18, beginning through 24. He says, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but one. That is God, and you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. But when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, well, then you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Logic is, I want to address logic because that's another aspect of thoughts. We talk about the information we take in, but there's also the the thought processes that we have based on that information. All of this stuff goes into forming who we are. Now, this man defined law as what creates purity, but we talk about the lists. He looked at a list. And and it's interesting that Jesus almost feeds him this line just to expose it. Now, Jesus is not agreeing that we should define the law or define purity through the law. He's saying, well, he he allows the premise for just a moment because he's going to bring something out that the guy hasn't expected. Well, you know, have you, what about this? Now, Jesus could have argued the point. There's no way that this man kept them perfectly from his youth. That's ridiculous. Jesus could have said, yeah, when you were 23, you remember that thing? And he doesn't, he doesn't even challenge that, because that's not where he wants to go. He doesn't want to confirm the idea that, that the law is actually what determines morality or purity. So he just sails right through that point. And he says, oh, one thing that you lack. Here's something that's not in the Old Testament. You didn't know. And now it's going to deal, and he deals with the heart. And he gets to the person's heart. And what is the person here, this, this man, what is his heart? Ah, he's very rich. He's very attached to his money. And Jesus goes to where his problem is. Jesus always did that. Jesus always went to where the person's problem was. You've got a purity problem. What was his purity problem? Wasn't whether he had money or not. That wasn't the problem. That was, that's an external thing. The purity problem was that he had a desire for it and it was going to keep him. In other words, his, his logic, what was important to him, what he was reasoning as foundation for life, and the, the thing that life is built in, his particular life was built around, his logic was wrong. And he couldn't give that up. Values. My values are the basis of my choice. And my wrong values, my wrong logic will eventually cause me to reject spiritual things. 
And that's important. It's, this is where we get into the purity. Well, in Hebrews, he says, it's not just judging your thoughts, but it also judges your motives. Well, that's kind of what we talked about with, with, the, with the money and, and, and things like that. But I want to get into that a little bit more. He says, it judges the thoughts and intents of your heart. If you think about it this way, logic is about how I'm getting to where I want to go. But motives address what I want, and they address why I want it. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, and people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. This is the, the, one of the lists that we're talking about, right? That we would look at and said, all these things. They're without self-control, brutal, loving, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. And this, I, I've put two things in bold here. And when I look at this list, I'm not one that goes, well, God's coming back anytime now. I, I, if you know me, I'm not one of those people. And when I read a verse like this, and I'm like, eh. I don't know. Because I look at the world around me and I, I see what we've talked about. I, I see uh, this phrase here. He says, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power. I, I see a religious world that is accepting a lot of the things from around it. We still have the appearance of, of in many cases, that the religious world has the appearance of godliness. And we, we come and we say and we do godly things, but they are premised upon things that are not godly at all they come from things that are premises of people who do not worship god and it, it gets a christian face thrown on it and it gets religious lingo attached to it but it is the panic of the world it has a form of godliness i can i can make it sound virtuous but it isn't. We hear words like tolerance. Well, tolerance sounds nice. You know, a lot of these words and things that, that sound religious. God says, there's, the last days there's going to be a lot of that. It's going to look religious, but it's not going to be. Why? Because the information is correct. The logic is wrong. And then he describes what I see. I don't know about what you see, but I see a lot of degrees of people who don't know anything. No, I'm sorry, that's just the way I'm going to say it. I see a lot of education. I see a lot of smart, smart people that do not know anything. They know a lot of information. And he says they never come to the knowledge of truth. How people can study things. And how we have so many universities devoted to, to, to getting information. And telling us things that we all know are wrong.
this is the condition of the world when God says, yeah, I'm getting ready to wrap it up. Now maybe there's a reset button. Maybe God has a reset button. He's done, he's reset it before. We don't live in the worst society ever in the history of mankind. So, so there's probably multiple situations in, in, in history where God said, where, where God's people said, you know what, I think it's getting ready to, I, I see these conditions here. God says, not, not quite yet. So, so maybe that's the case. But I'm saying this is something to think about. God wants genuine purity. He wants the right thoughts. He, it's more than just, I'm not going to think bad thoughts about so-and-so. It's not being mixed with what's around us. And we get to the last part here, very quickly. Because we talk about posture, seeing God. He talks about the, the reward. Those who do this will, will see God. It is an upward posture. And I want to look at this in two aspects. The long-term view is I'm going to see God. That, that's, that's the long-term view. As I say, I don't know how long-term from where I'm at. But as, as humanity spirals downward and society spirals downward, if nothing else, I can say, I'm going to see God. We'll get through this. And there's going to come a point in time where I'm not thinking about this anymore, where I'm with God and I can see God, and that's good news. There's going to come a point in time where I'm not. So, did you remember all that political stuff? I said, well, I'll go, what was politics? What's politics? There's going to be that moment somewhere where I will not remember what politics was. I cannot wait for that day. Do you remember Facebook? What was Facebook? I, I don't. If nothing else, I can take that long-term view. They can pass whatever laws they want today. And I can go, you know what? There's going to come a point in time. I will see God. And this will all be sorted out. But there is the short-term view. And this is what they needed to see. Remember, these, these are people sitting on the mountainside. Listening to Christ for the first time, many of them. Of people with a, with a hard, hard life. Don't, let, let's not let this get past us. The, the people to whom he is speaking, this is very important for them to hear. This is a specific message. You're going to be blessed because you're going to see God. And I don't think he's just talking about in heaven. I think he's contrasting them. Because this is where Jesus spent most of his ministry. This is the, the place, the area where Jesus directed all of his efforts. Why? Because the people in Jerusalem couldn't see him. They missed God in the flesh. They missed him. Their thoughts and all of their stuff about lists and, and, and what to them purity was, they could not see Christ and his teaching. They missed him. 
And so Jesus says, listen, you guys are going to have a unique opportunity that, that, that other people aren't going to have. I'm going to spend all my time or most of my time with you because you're going to have the opportunity if you don't mix with all of these other ideas theologically. If you don't mix these, you're going to be able to see God. You're going to spend time with God right now. The short-term view is that we won't miss God now. We can get caught up waiting for heaven. Have that long-term view. But don't miss God now. The pure in heart, those who separate all that stuff out, will see God now. If I get caught up in politics, and social agendas that the world thinks that are really, really important, I will miss God now. I will be too focused on the things that I think my logic dictates are important to get caught up in. I will evaluate, for example, I will evaluate a situation which is horrible purely on one factor. To, to look at pictures of places that I've literally physically been and to see buildings destroyed that I have seen not destroyed is extremely difficult. That's, that's difficult. A church building, our church building got damaged this week. That's difficult. And my mind wants to go bad. This bad. I put that in that box. Well, is it nice? No, it's not nice. Are people dying? Yes. Mass graves have been found all over the place. You, you can't read the headlines and go, this is good. But that's one side of logic. That, that's that natural physical side of logic that says this. But God says, can we, can we just... Back up just a moment and look at what God is doing now. See God now. See hundreds and hundreds of people being immersed into Christ. I started posting them all at the beginning because it was so amazing. I, I can't do it. I, can't, I would spend all my time on Facebook reposting baptisms that are happening all over the place. Sometimes in history, God has done that. When God blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses and nothing gets a response, God says, oh, I'm going to allow something different to happen. And we'll see how this one works. And if I just dismiss everything that's happening as bad, I'm not going to see God doing something. God is doing something in Ukraine. Now, I don't know how long he's going to let this happen. But what is happening in Ukraine is not happening apart from God noticing it. And God is using it for something. I'm not saying he's doing it, but he's certainly using it. The hand of God is in Ukraine. And I have to remind myself of that because that's not the way I naturally think. I'm too emotionally invested. 
if I use my natural senses, I will miss God. This is purity. I want to finish with, I'm going to let David conclude for me today. And this is the conclusion. This is a song of ascent. That means they would sing a line and walk up 15 steps to the temple. I think it was to the temple. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day. The moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out. And you're coming in from this time forth. Let's stand and sing together.